This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. This is going to be primarily a catch-up show, uh, but not an, all, an only internet uh, program as talked about or speculated about last week. Although we may do that um, this coming weekend. We do have a huge backlog of stuff that we need to get out there. And with only 58 minutes to work with on a weekly basis, well, we're behind. So is our good pal, Mr. Will Durst, who won't be joining us in today's program. He's taking a week off. But in our second segment, we're going to hopefully go to Aggie Editor-in-Chief Elizabeth Orpina to talk about um, what the heck happened and uh, what may be done to restore the Aggie to being, again, a print edition. Listeners to the show will know that yours truly is no fan of internet-only publications. I like to hold things in my hand, which offers a nice segue to the third segment today. We're going to hopefully talk about The Lonely Planet and uh, what's happened to it. I I was quite surprised to discover um, what has happened to the organization started by Tony and Maureen Wheeler back in the 70s. And they, too, are talking about how they need to have electronic devices to carry around to take the place of the old books. Although they admit there is the kind of person who will want to have a book no matter what. To which I say, well, yeah, that would be the kind of person that hates to keep buying batteries. Because I will say in traveling about the world and visiting, I guess at this point, 90 countries and more often than not having a Lonely Planet book along to help guide the process, I never once was unable to read the book because I was out of electricity. At any rate, let's begin the show as we always like to do with On This Date in History. Our date in question today is the 15th of May. Oh, and I do want to note that in describing the things that took place last week on May 8th, uh, someone took me aside and said, you didn't think it was worth mentioning Victory in Europe Day? (laughs) Oh, oh yeah, there's that. To which we offer a brief apology to... uh, all those who fought on the Allied side during World War II in the European theater. But today we're dealing with May 15th, and I would note that it was on May 15th, in the year 1856, when law enforcement agencies proved unable to keep order in the lawless gold rush boomtown known as San Francisco, California, a group of angered residents formed a second vigilante committee to combat robberies and other crimes. Some offenders were summarily hanged. Others were escorted out of town. And boy, we're going to have to talk about what's going on down in Mexico regarding uh, vigilantes. We're wondering why the NRA has been strangely silent about some of these events. On May 15th in 1948, Israel, the new state of Israel, was attacked by Jordan, Syria, Egypt, Iraq, and Lebanon just hours after gaining independence from Great Britain. And it was on May 15th in 1972 that Governor George Wallace of Alabama was shot by 21-year-old Arthur Bremer during the U.S. presidential campaign and was permanently paralyzed from the waist down. Wallace continued to campaign from his hospital bed and wheelchair, but he lost a third-party bid for the presidency in the end. What's curious about that series of events back in 1972 is that most people forget that at the time he was shot, George Wallace was the Democratic front-runner. He'd won quite a few primaries, and as my memory serves me correctly, he, uh, he had more delegates than anybody else at that point. 
You know, Mr. Miller, we ought to do a show on that at some point, or at least a segment on, on what happened to George Wallace, except that there just aren't that many people who loved the governor from Alabama. So I don't know we're going to be able to find someone who's studied the case like they have some of the other political assassinations in this country. Our quote of the day comes from newspaper columnist Leo Aikman, saying, You can tell more about a person by what he says about others than you can by what others say about him. Our quote of the day comes from another newspaper man, the great H.L. Mencken, who once said, The curse of all the arts is the fact that they are constantly invaded by persons with absolutely nothing to say. Our joke of the day comes from Duncan Caldwell, who once said, Americans have more time-saving devices and less time than any other group of people in the world. Our anecdote of the week comes from yours truly, who was very pleased to note upon driving back from the Bay Area on Tuesday that on Michael Krasny's excellent forum program on KQED, they were interviewing Thomas Getz, whom we'd had on this program just a few weeks back. We thought Mr. Getz made an excellent uh, interviewee and talking about his book, The Remedy, Robert Koch, Arthur Conan Doyle, and the Quest to Cure Tuberculosis. If you didn't hear that program, dear listener, we recommend that you go to our archives and pull it up. It was just, you know, a few shows back. Mr. Krasny, as he so often does, did an excellent job with Mr. Getz and did brag when some of the high quality of callers uh, chimed in on the subject that, uh, that they have in the Bay Area, uh, a group of callers like no other. Now, my understanding is I've not been able to check this out, but I believe that over at the Insight program at Capital Public Radio, uh, they were trying to book our guest David Rosenblum to learn more about his work on Julius Caesar. We're not sure about that one, though. And for our stats of the day, well, we have several. First stat comes from HuffingtonPost.com and is that 65% of Americans support the death penalty for convicted murderers. This includes 82% of Republicans and 53% of Democrats. Of those who support capital punishment, 74% say they want executions to continue, even if the condemned suffer extreme pain and struggle for breath for more than 20 minutes before dying. We'll have more to say about that. Stat number two pertains to April of this year. It's noted that for the first time in history, carbon dioxide readings at the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii will exceed 400 parts per million for a full month. It's noted this is a symbolic breach for global warming to keep under 2 degrees Celsius atmosphere CO2 must stabilize at 400 parts per million. That's according to models. But of course, at the moment, with nobody doing much of anything about it, the only way for CO2 to go is up. And we have this item from the opinion section of the Sacramento News and Review staff. To quote from it, the University of California system continues to cash in by accepting more out-of-state students as its overall admission rates dip. The numbers are especially striking at UC Davis, where Chancellor Linda Katehi leads the push to add 5,000 more students by 2020. The goal is not just more students, but also more international and out-of-state students who pay 36780 in tuition and fees instead of the 13000 paid by homegrown California undergrads. 
said the News and Review staff. We get that colleges are hard up, but can they be a little less brazen? And I must say, having had 40-plus years of experience with UC Davis, it's been my observation that something is up as to regards the sheer volume of international students you now see on campus. Could the reason for this be that UCD can generate an extra $23,000 a head for these folks? Well, we have our suspicions, and we're going to look into that in the future. And for our good news item of the week, we would note that apparently tomorrow, Friday, May 16th, PBS is going to be airing an American Masters special on George Plimpton. George Plimpton is remembered in literary circles as a great party host who in his spare time edited the esteemed Paris Review for 50 years until his death in 2003. But you should know, dear listener, that Plimpton lived life as a grand adventure. And apparently this rollicking documentary revisits all of his greatest exploits as a participatory journalist. From quarterbacking the Detroit Lions to pitching to Willie Mays to joining the trapeze squad in a traveling circus. We like George Plimpton, and by God, we're going to watch that documentary and think that, you know, you you might do well to do likewise. Although it's worthy of note that Plimpton only played a series of downs during a halftime exhibition with the Detroit Lions. His description of it is uh, pretty vivid, including, as I recall, the pass rush of Alex Karras, which was rather formidable. You know Alex Karras, the guy that knocks out a horse in blazing saddles. All right, I think at this point we should jump right into the good, the bad... And the ugly. All right, it was apparently a good week last week for, I guess it's either life after death or stupidity in North Carolina with this item. And I quote, Dateline, Asheboro, North Carolina. The entrepreneur who was locked in a too-close-to-call Democratic primary with former American Idol singer Clay Aiken died Monday, said his family. Keith Crisco, 71, died after an accidental fall at his home in Asheboro. Aiken was leading Crisco by fewer than 400 votes after the contest last Tuesday. The <laughs> Associated Press reports that... Unless Crisco can come from behind during a final tally of the votes this week, Aiken will be the nominee. That's according to spokesman Josh Lawson. And yes, like you, we have to assume that if Mr. Crisco does regain the lead, they're going to run a dead man for office in North Carolina. And considering the quality of politicians in North Carolina, that might actually be an improvement. All right, according to The Week magazine, it was a bad week last week for ankles after Italian researchers revealed that cracks have appeared in the ankles of Michelangelo's David and that the marble statue carved in 1504 could soon collapse under its own 5.5-ton weight. Yes, and like you, we're anxious to sit back and watch with amusement what Italian authorities do to address this crisis. It's the specialty of Italian authorities when dealing with a crisis to do nothing. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for bragging after a Florida teen was arrested after he posted a video titled Me Driving Like an Idiot, in which he crashed into four vehicles and injured five people, including himself. 
Police commented on the 18-year-old's video by saying, we certainly appreciate it. And uh, we have a letter to read, which I wish had been written to us. In fact, it was written to the Sacramento Bee by Mr. Gabriel Lewin from Davis. In regard to the story about State Senator Leland Yee getting himself into some hot water along with his pal Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow, Mr. Lewis wrote, Regarding Capital Has Class on Ethics, page A1, April 24th, I am a Democratic supporter, but the recent announcement of an ethics training course for legislators made me laugh. It is disingenuous at best. Like when a public figure busted doing something awful immediately announces that he is going into alcohol rehab. Said Mr. Lewin, I can see it now. Oh my God, you mean to tell me that it's unethical to take bribes? Who knew? So procuring guns and military-type weapons to sell to criminal gangs is against the law? You don't say. I'm glad I took this course. You learn something new every day. Ain't it the truth? Reminds us of the old Steve Martin bit about how if you're arrested and put on trial for armed robbery, you should just say, well, I forgot that armed robbery was illegal. And of course, you may be uh, glad to know that our government is finally getting around to investigating some matters of uh, misrepresentations that cost American lives and apparently involved a bit of a cover-up. I know what you're thinking. It's about time we got down and busted some of the jackasses in the Bush administration for the lies they told about getting us involved in Iraq. But you'd be wrong. This is all about Benghazi. The morons at the Wall Street Journal predictably sounded off by saying, despite the best efforts of the Obama administration, the liberal media, and the Hillary for President campaign, the story isn't going away. I think nobody has a better comment about this whole thing than Mark Evanier, whose uh, website news from me, we frequently quote from because Mark's such a damn good writer. He said, Kevin Drum points us to an article that reminds us how Republicans first tried using Benghazi as a club against Obama. Back when it first happened, before anybody knew exactly what was happening, Mitt Romney was rearranging facts so he could use the incident as a campaign issue against the guy he was running against. I caught a bit of Sean Hannity last week acting horrified at the notion that the Obama administration, quote, spun, unquote, the truth a bit, to make themselves look better. Why don't I recall any outrage from Hannity and his crowd over the Bush administration telling us point blank that we had to go to war because Saddam had those indisputable weapons of mass destruction? Which statement involved the loss of more American lives and limbs? To which we add, amen. Well, speaking of Iraq, which I think we should do for a moment, uh, the place where freedom was on the march, thanks to our intervention, the briefing section of the May 16th copy of the week summarizes what's going on over there pretty well. The first question they answered was, how bad is the situation? They responded by noting, it's extremely grim. When U.S. soldiers withdrew in 2011, President Obama boasted that they were, quote, leaving behind a sovereign, stable, and self-reliant Iraq, unquote. Three years later, the country is under the thumb of an authoritarian ruler, riddled with corruption, and trapped in horrific sectarian violence. Nearly every day, mammoth explosions rock the capital, Baghdad, and other cities, tearing apart restaurants, public markets, and government buildings. In April alone, 750 Iraqis were killed in bombings or in the fighting between government forces and a formidable Sunni extremist insurgency. 
Describing the corruption over there, the magazine noted that it's blatant and widespread. In fact, al-Maliki's government has become a symbol of bribery and theft, with corporate politicians siphoning off millions of dollars worth of oil revenues from within the comfort of Baghdad's green zone. Abdul Mahdi estimates that almost $220 billion, with a B, has been allocated in the last few years to some 6,000 shady government projects and another $70 billion in government loans that's been handed out without being repaid. Said political scientist Ghassan al-Atiyah, the corruption is unbelievable. You can't get a job in the army or the government unless you pay. You can't even get out of prison unless you pay. That, combined with the dire lack of public services, including constant electricity shortages, has led to the sense that the overall standard of life in Iraq has only deteriorated since Saddam was toppled. After the first Gulf War, Saddam Hussein had the power up and running in the country within a matter of months. We went in in 2003. It's now 2014. And in spite of spending a lot of money on contractors that were supposed to rebuild their infrastructure, they still have electricity shortages. Nice. And how about this little bit of anti-Muslim sentiment coming from Birmingham in the UK? Apparently... Birmingham officials are investigating an alleged plot by Islamic extremists to infiltrate the city schools. The allegations stem from an anonymous letter that described Operation Trojan Horse, a plan to ban sex education, separate boys from girls in classrooms, and force out teachers and staff who don't support Islamist views. My question is, how different is this from the minions of Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson? setting out across the country to infiltrate school boards. With, among other things, a plan to ban sex education. Hmm. Hmm. I guess it's okay if they're God-fearing Christians, as opposed to God-fearing Muslims. I think we're going to take a break in a minute or two here, but before we do, I want to, um, to poo-poo in an alleged health hazard, which got some ink last month, which we just don't think you need to worry about. Apparently over at Purdue University, an ecology professor, Ernest R. Blatchley, who apparently does not have enough hobbies, has conducted a study which notes that in addition to being lazy and a gross way to answer to nature's call, peeing in the pool may pose an outright health hazard. This new study done at Purdue has determined that the uric acid found in urine mixes with the chlorine in pools to produce two toxic byproducts, trichloroamine, and cyanogen chloride. Exposure to the former has been linked to respiratory problems while the latter can harm the heart, lungs, and central nervous system. Here's a grim stat. These researchers note that although some people go and some others don't go in a pool, on the average, on the average, a person leaves about 30 to 80 milliliters of urine in a pool each time they swim. It's noted that athletes sometimes are notorious offenders, both Ryan Lochte and Michael Phelps have copped to peeing in a pool, believing it's harmless. Professor Blatsley said, they are not chemists. They shouldn't be making statements that are false. If there was a great health hazard from the mixing of urine and chlorine, I would ask, why is it that people that clean out toilets using chlorine don't suffer the consequences of mixing these two compounds? Mr. McMillan asks, how do I know they don't? Well, sir, I'm just going with my gut on this one. You know, but if we can obtain a grant from the National Institutes of Health 
to study this particular problem. I am willing. The fact of the matter is, as we talked about this show many times, the amount of urea or uric acid that's in urine is a fairly small amount. So even if these compounds have some toxicity, they are in very low concentrations. Call me a skeptic, but I will note in closing and lament slightly the fact that the dubious achievements of the year award have been discontinued by Esquire magazine as of several years ago, which is very unfortunate because I got some of my biggest laughs of the year every January when that issue hit the stands. It was how Esquire captioned the, uh, the news items. It was where the yucks came in. One of my all-time favorites, and one of my all-time favorites was um, the time when Mark Spitz, noted Olympiad swimming champion, was uh, touring the country on a couple of occasions in the wake of his tremendous athletic success. And he told the press that he would never go out there and memorize a speech saying that would be too plastic. What he, Mark Spitz, would do was simply remember six key words that would allow him to give the talk. Esquire captioned this item, Swim in toilet, pee in pool. All right, I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Prelex. We've got plenty more. Stick around. Once I was swimming across Turtle Creek, man, them snappers all around my feet. Sure was hard swimming across that thing with both hands holding.